Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 141 of the In Squash podcast. And we have a big one today. It's Peter Nickel on uh, today. And what a great chat we had. Uh, extremely uh, a great honor for me to be speaking to him. Uh, we've been trying to get this together for a little while, and it finally came through this time. And uh, not disappointed, and it was well, well, well worth the wait. Uh, Peter, obviously, uh, a huge fan of his game and a huge fan of the uh, Jonathan Power, Peter Nickel era. I mean, I think that era is unprecedented in terms of the rivalry that existed between the two of them. So dramatic, so electric. Obviously, there were rivalries in the past. The the Khan, the Jancher, Jahangir rivalry is uh, unique in and of itself. But this one had a different feel to it, a different vibe to it. And every time they stepped on the court together, you didn't know what was going to happen. Either one guy won or the other. Uh, either one guy won uh, convincingly or the other guy. That's the way it seemed and Peter talks a little bit about that on today's podcast. Uh, so really uh, fantastic. And let me just preface everything by saying I uh, uh, hope all of you are okay, safe, healthy, and well during this uh, tough time and uh, keeping uh, your, you know, maintaining your civic responsibility, doing what we can to stem the spread of the COVID-19 virus and hopefully sooner rather than later. There are uh, sort of uh, some squash being played around the world, New Zealand, I think, obviously they haven't uh, been hit that hard or hit hard at, at all by the by the virus and they're, they've got a Premier League uh squash going on at the moment but at any rate uh, i hope all of you are safe healthy and well during this tough time now uh, peter nickel uh, on the podcast today firstly we talk about the nickel squash academies which are, are in new york city two of them one in Ro- uh, well in new york state one in rhode island and one in manhattan and uh, obviously these days uh, things are there's no squash going on but peter describes what they're doing with their clubs in the virtual squash environment, and we get uh, we take a deep dive into COVID and uh, how he sees it from a management and ownership perspective, uh, what he'd like to see happen in order to uh, get back uh, onto the squash court, and it's a very enlightening uh, discussion, I think, and also in terms of what they're doing uh, in terms of their their virtual coaching, and uh, beyond that, of course, I had to ask Peter, and we and he was uh, very uh, very good with his time. We talk. A lot about the JP um, Peter Nickel rivalry era, and not only that, but prior to that, uh, we get into uh, Jancher Khan, and of course, uh, Peter uh, took the world number one spot from Jancher, who held it for many years uh, in 1998, and then affirmed that with a win at the after he took the number one spot, affirmed that with a win over Jancher in the final of the British Open. We talk a lot about that as well. And Peter had several uh, important influences, uh, personally and professionally, in his career. We talk about his father, Pat. We uh, uh, talk about Neil Harvey, obviously, and uh, David Pearson. So all of these guys have impacted Peter in one way or another over the years as a person and as a player. And Peter uh, pays homage to, to them on the podcast. Uh, you're going to enjoy this one. I know I did. I was a bit nervous uh, getting into the, the interview, but, uh, you know, Peter's a easy guy to talk to, and it was fantastic. I know you're going to enjoy this one. Now, before we get started, though, I just want to talk to you about our sponsor here, uh, Active Scout. 
Okay, now Active Scout, uh, they've been with the podcast for a little while now, so maybe you know about them, but maybe you don't. At Active Scout, we understand that in these strange times, staffing duties will need to be redefined. Uh, taking bookings does not need to be one of those duties. Active Scout is the world's most efficient booking app, and we are here to provide your members with a quick and easy way to organize their games and book a court. This is going to be essential going forward. Until there is a publicly available vaccine, Active Scout is offering all clubs access to our mobile booking app for free that's right for free this is not a replacement for your club management system though if you don't have a modern club management system we would be happy to suggest one that we integrate with for right now though let's make your world a little less expensive our redesigned booking system will help keep your members appropriately dispersed throughout the day and make communication a whole lot easier we'll be relaunching the app again on june 1st but reach out to us today at active scout Dot com so that we can begin setting up your new mobile booking system. That's Active Scout without the E dot com. Active Scout without the E dot com. And now let's get into this uh, one of the best podcasts we've had up till now. Peter Nickel on episode one forty one. Enjoy. How are you? Great to see you, Peter. And I firstly uh, just hope all uh, everything's okay with your family. Everyone's safe. Everyone's. Uh, healthy navigating the uh, pandemic yep thank you very much i only um all family are safe and healthy my sister runs a health center back in the uk um for like the 100 staff members so wow. i mean she she manages the whole thing so on a daily basis she says it's surreal where there's one entrance for regular people and there's one entrance with hazmats and for people who are sick and she's She's, she goes in every day for however long it takes to manage it and stuff. So, but she's staying healthy and safe. So it's great. Wow. Um, but other than that, everyone else is, yeah, we're all usual. Everyone's trying to get by and do their thing. But again, yeah. most important thing, everyone's safe and healthy. So thank you. I hope you are as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, similar over here, you know, we've all got a, our civic responsibility and that's to, uh, <clears throat> you know, stay self isolated and do what we can uh, over here. It's the, the, um, the infections haven't haven't peaked yet. Right. You know, they're still going up. So, um, but I mean, it's not a, as bad as some some places. I'm in the UAE, by the way. So yeah, no, I got that. Yeah, yeah. Some I'm places, still going up here in the US. So um, yeah. Well, New York so, City uh, had a you know that that, that made be, obviously it's New York City, so it's you know amplified. But uh, yeah, they, they three made, airports, two train stations, subways elevators i mean i mean if there was a place for it to unfortunately really hit new york is the place right because everyone's in such close proximity to everyone else all the time right um but you know they've, they've worked hard and they seem to be getting it under control but it's you know it's it's a long game absolutely well um just want to say thanks a lot peter for for doing this uh let me just preface everything by saying um uh, you're one of the guys that I really, I mean, I, I've been playing squash. I'm older than you, but uh, you're, you're one, of, one of the I'm heroes. So I'm so used to it now. Like I grew up watching you play and my, my dad really loved you. <laughs> well, that's well, what I normally get. That's what I normally get now. Yeah. So. Is it, I don't know. Is it okay for, for a hero? Like I, you know, I had Jonathan on, I'm Canadian. So a while ago, is, he kind of didn't like it when I called him my hero, even though I'm older than him. So uh, I'm not sure if you're allowed, if that can be because I played him at, 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 when I was in juniors. He was much younger than me. But uh, anyways, 
long story short, uh, really appreciate those years that you in your era, not only Jonathan, but all those guys. It was fantastic uh, squash, really good years. And uh, just want to say thanks on behalf, not, you know, on behalf of a lot of people uh, for, for quality uh, squash experience during that era. Um, I agree. I think I, I was lucky to sort of straddle three eras. So I yeah. just caught the end of, of probably yeah. what people would say the golden generation, Jahangir, Janshir, Dittmar, Robertson, the Martins, Isles. Um, oh goodness, it just keeps going. You know, Zarek Yahankan. I mean, yeah. there's so many amazing. I've missed someone. Oh, Ross Norman, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, it's just like there was that era that I just saw the back end of. Uh, I say Chris Dittmar. Um, and... You know, it's just, I got to see some of that for a year, year and a half and play the play a couple of them. I played Jancher quite a lot, but Dittmar once or twice. Jangir never, Rodney Martin once, Brett Martin five or six times. You played Isles as well, didn't you? Yeah, I played Rodney a lot because he, he transitioned, he continued into the next era, I would say for me. Anyway, that's what I would class. But um, to, to be around and see all those guys and watch them and then, then, then my my stage was the next one with Jancher and Rodney Isles and Brett Martin, and then after that it was then Jonathan and Barada, and then then Thierry and Palmer and White, and you know so maybe I had four different <laughs> different yeah, years. Yeah. Then Banna came, yeah, um, yeah. But it was um, I was feel very lucky to be part of that as well. I learned so much from being around and seeing those players. Um, old wooden rackets to transition into new graphite rackets to like low tin, uh, shortening the scoring. There was a whole bunch of changes that kind of happened like before, during and, and around my period, which yeah. made it for a very like, exciting, challenging and interesting period where I think lots of different people then came through and different styles and techniques came through and kind of, I, I personally had to transition through it all. So mm. you know, I'm super appreciative now as a coach having gone through that because I had to learn that. You know, I yeah, was yeah. a very specific type of player when I was younger. And then I had to I had to learn to adapt and change. Not because it was necessary because of injury or anything else. It was necessary because the game changed. Mm. You know, the, everything was changing. So therefore I had to I had to adapt and, and change. Um, and then as you get older, then you have the young people young players coming in as well and then adding to the, <laughs> adding yeah. to that. So yeah, no, I think that for me, I was so lucky to have played in the time that I did. Oh, for sure. Um, for sure. And what the sport has given me, period, has just been amazing. Uh, absolutely. I mean, and, and it's a testament to your, your talents. I mean, obviously, you, you were ultra-talented anyways, but you were able to um, overcome different types of players as, they, as the younger generation came through and adapt your game and improve your game uh, and maintain the same high, you know, number one level of quality that you had during most of uh, the time that you were playing. So I guess uh, that, that speaks to your work ethic. Well, that's what I was going to say. It's, it, I have a very specific thought on that. If I do any physical testing, I'm terrible. You know, um, you do your basic mm. test and one out of 10, I get two or threes. I really don't go any past, any further past that in any physical test, whether it be speed, endurance, um, power, strike, any of them, you know, you can go, go through them all. And, um, if I hit the ball, I mean, do I hit it like Shabana or Power or White or no? I can't hit the ball anything like those guys. Mm. So the thing that the thing, the quality and the, the trait that I had that made the difference, which allowed me to go through all these different um, eras and and types of play, was that ability to adapt and learn. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was my number one strength and ability. Everything else, I was catching up against those guys. You know, really, 
because each of them had amazing strengths. Um, I suppose, I, I, again, some of those I did as well, but that was my strength. And when people yeah. say, oh, come on, you hit the ball beautifully. Yeah, you move well, and you're super fit, and you're fast. Really? Basic testing? No. Simple as that. Um, right. You know, so it, and what I, that's what I love about squash. You can be any shape, any size of any quality, and if you maximize that quality while also learning to minimize the other areas and improve them as much as you can, you can go all the way. You can do anything you want. Yeah. And there are so many sports that just isn't the case, you know? Um, and that's why the open skills sports squash um, has always fascinated me and still does. Well, uh, I mean, I think yeah, perfectly well said there. Uh, just as an observer of, of your game and, uh, you know, as a, as a fan of both you and Jonathan, I just, I, I really loved your, your front court backhand fake cross court drop. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that got everybody every time, every time. I so I think you're selling yourself short there. That, that's why I got them, because I did it once every, like, three years. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But uh, anyways, uh, I just want – we'll get into a little bit of that uh, a little later on. It's not going to be two hours, by the way. Uh, I got kids, too. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> but uh, I'd love to. Um, but uh, We can do another one if, it's, if it goes well. Okay, cool. Uh, now, what – what these days, what does your squash day or work routine um, sort of look like now under the, under the circumstances? Obviously, you'd rather be uh, in one of your two uh, brand new facilities there. But uh, I guess that's something that's, you know, occupying your time regardless. Yeah, so we've, we've um, transitioned into doing virtual squash coach so now i'm a squash coach and we have programs in manhattan in new york city and also in rhode island we have actually our own club nickel squash club there where arthur gaskin is the head pro mm -hmm. um and we have a lot of summer camps that are now not going to go ahead uh, for obvious reasons so we've we've been working the last nine weeks and it's my my time's kind of spent consistently the same way so during the day I'm, I'm working to try and find new ways and different ways to deliver content to our players mm -hmm. um, creating that content with our coaches and working out what's best uh, planning for the future for s virtual summer camps um, planning for September onwards to think about how that could look in terms of maybe only having individual lessons going forward for a period of time because you can't actually play someone else. We don't know yet, um, but I do feel that that's going to take a long time before that comes back, yeah. especially in places like New York City, um, for, for, again, for obvious and the correct reasons. Um, so, and then and trying to work out from a virtual um, and technology standpoint how we can deliver something incredibly meaningful to our players whilst also trying to minimize their time on a computer because they've spent yeah. all day on a school doing Zoom calls with their teachers and work and, and we don't want to keep them on there. We want to get them to run around and enjoy playing squash as much as they can in their own space. Yeah. So when we do the sessions, we try and make it very physical but also very technical in terms of the moving and learning and thinking about swings and visualizations and analysis. So... So this is like a virtual membership, uh, more or less, for at, at these clubs where you may have members uh, already. It's like a vir uh, now it's online kind of thing. Yes. So the junior yeah. coaching has transitioned to being online at certain times mm -hmm. of the day. Um, Arthur Gaskin still runs and takes all the sessions for the the Rhode Island Club, Nickel Squash Club, and then uh, myself and Jamal Callender, with some support from Chris Sackfey, um run the sessions at the Manhattan for the Manhattan players. Um, okay. So we probably have 30 to 50% to 
take up from the regular numbers who are still participating um, in these. And it's always so nice to see these players because uh, you know you, every day in the out we were seeing them um, at yeah. the squash club, and then now not being able to see them. So um, it's great that they still want to do it. I feel like we add a different and, and interesting dimension to their their day. Um, they get a good physical workout. They learn about more about the sport they want. And I think they're also committed to understanding that during this period, they can learn a lot. You know, mm. they, can, they can improve a lot without actually being able to hit a ball. Now, would they be able to go straight in and play a great game of squash? Probably not. But could the components of their game be all better? Yes. Um, nice. and that's kind of how we're, how we're positioning it and how we're working on it. Um, and the players seem to be really buying into it. And, and, and more than anything, they just love playing squash. So if yeah. they can have any type of squash environment with us and we can hang out together and, and do some working out and, and have a laugh and do something like that, it makes them feel a sense of normalcy, I think, as well. So what would you say, like, in terms of the, the virtual stuff that you have up there and, and that you, you would advise your, your students to, to be doing, what do you think would be uh, maybe some, some of the, the more important things that they could be doing in order to, to, to keep sharp? Yep. I yeah. think movement practice is probably the easiest for everyone because if you think about a squash court, although it is, you know, it's a reasonably sized space, you actually, you know, we've seen the PSE heat maps you know, on PSE right, Squash TV, yeah. and you don't move that far you know, no. into the front in particular you're, unless you go in for a counter. So you drop and then counter, and then you're all the way to the front. But other than that, you're, you're within a limited range. So if you have a room that's eight by eight space, yeah. you can practically create an, the same environment as a movement of, a, of the T in the squash court. So for us, it's very much about using your space to create those movements to prepare, so preparation is a big one. So first of all, movement, but then preparation of your racket, your shoulders, your rotation, thinking mm -hmm. about your wrist, and thinking about how you swing and follow through. Um, and then once you get all that in place, it's then the visualization, then starting to bring it in, like how right. do, where's, where's the ball right now? Where is it coming from? Where am I going to? So watch the corner and go in and hit the ball. Is you've it got, you've got Jesse uh, doing some great stuff with, uh, with the visualization. Yeah, I had I him. Mean, uh, I had him on the podcast last week, and it was he was shot out of a cannon. <laughs> he's amazing. Yeah, he's. I mean, he's such an amazing coach, right? He's. It's, yeah. He's all in. He's thinking about it all the time. You can tell he's so passionate about it. Yeah. And um, the visualization aspect, we knew it was important, or I did, but it really emphasized how important it is to help you improve. Mm. I think sometimes I forget because I do things naturally because I've done it for 35, 30, no goodness, 39 years um, since I started playing squash. And it's just, <laughs> yeah. I know it's terrifying, 39 years. Yeah. And to, to break it down, again, as a coach, I'm learning that there's that during this period, new techniques, new ways of thinking or emphasizing certain aspects of how you can improve, how you can help someone learn to improve, how you can frame it so they can understand. Um, so the visualization stuff, once you've got the basics down, I think the visualization becomes ph phenomenal. Like today, we're going to do a great session. Last week was uh, attacking, um, okay. where you're visualizing, creating a scenario, then attacking a ball, so your favorite mm -hmm. attacking shot. And then this week is defense. So it's like where you find yourself in trouble and how you can lift and then convert the defense to attack. Yeah, that, that was um, something that I thought, obviously, you had to you know, skill set beyond most people, but that was something that you, you did extremely well was, uh, you know, you lifted that ball and then somehow managed to find yourself back, uh, in a rally 
when you shouldn't have been. And I think Jonathan helped me tremendously with that because mm. one thing I was always aware of with Jonathan and we'd look at each other playing when we got to tournaments and see if we were in trouble or not. <laughs> and <laughs> one of the things I would look for was if his first movement off the tee going forward was as quick as it could be and as sharp, then I knew yeah. that I was in for a really tough time because it almost not negated the front of the court, but it certainly made it very hard for me to put him under pressure. Yeah. So what I then went away and worked on was my first step going forward because I needed to get better at that. And then once I got better at that, it allowed me to get onto the ball quicker and then defend better because I, I was able to get under the ball more. Yeah. Um, or if the shot wasn't that great, I was able to attack that ball. So I had two options then, whereas before right. I probably only had the lob and it was a very defensive lob. So all of a sudden it became like a potentially a defense into attack. You know, it became that offensive sort of shot. Mm. Um, but so today we're going to do the def defense right. and it's a five game, um, okay. 40, 40 minute game, 40, 40 minute match, um, moving mm -hmm. up from, um, five seconds, 10 seconds, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 45 length of rally, then back down to five. That's game one. Okay. And all the way to five this is a visualized down. game. Yeah, coaches, coaches are taking the players through. I'm taking through our coaches are all taking the players through it. Yeah. Um, but and, and talking to them about their movement, thinking about making sure they're staying on top of what you're thinking about. How are you? How are you going mm. into that shot? Why are you going in like that? You know, so it's not just a I'm going into the front and just swinging the racket. Right. I'm going into the front under pressure, going low, and I'm lifting or I'm countering or I'm flicking across whatever I need to do. Um, as you can see, I'm geeking out a little bit and getting into yeah, my well, head. Me too. I, I, I want to tell you, I want, I want to interrupt. This is great. And, the, and the, the best thing about this, when it came up last week, was that when we were playing, everyone won. You mean everyone won the match 3-2, yeah, yeah. right? Well, as no it should won. be when you're visualizing. You don't, you don't exactly. visualize losing, right? Exactly. <laughs> um, so today, uh, one of our coaches, Jabal Callender, uh, our coach, he's, He's been working out all week, so he said, I'm not doing it today. I'm literally, I'm going to be talking and watching and coaching. So I'm going to do a five-game five match this afternoon, um, right. which is going to be both exciting and a little bit terrifying. That's awesome. I was just thinking, uh, just on, on this point, I was just thinking, and I just said it actually, uh, visualizing uh, losing. That, that might be worth uh, investigating. I mean, we, we're going to lose uh, at some point, you know. Uh, yep. Some of us more than others, but... Uh, I mean, I it's worth, worth losing is, mm. is, is one of those tricky ones, right? <laughs> you don't want to go into it too no, no. much, but it's, it's a, it's worthwhile point because like anyone, everyone, but one person in the tournament in a squash type of event, which is like a 16, 32, 64 draw is yeah. a loser. Yeah. There's only one person every time wins every yeah. game. Yeah. So therefore yeah. you've got to cope, understand and learn and improve. And as long as it's framed in a very positive manner in terms of what are you doing, what's it feel like, and how can you turn mm. that around, it's really important um, losing. Really important. Yeah, yeah. How, how to overcome loss and then how to sort of follow up from it. Maybe yep. in a, that, that type of visualization. I'm no expert uh, in visualization, but I'm just, I'm just thinking, uh, you know, if you had this session, then you would say, okay, why did I lose that game? Uh, you know, may, may, maybe it's me visualizing this with you. I, I tell you, you tell me, okay, this is the shot I just played. And then I go up and I play the whatever counter drop. And then you put me away with the reverse angle of fake cross court backhand. Yep. Right. And then I, I, leave, I leave the match and I take my notes. 
Yeah, yeah, I think it's great. And <laughs> that's exactly what happened. It's one every three years, right? Remember? Yeah, yeah. Again next year. <laughs> um, I, I think it's great. Um, and what we try and do is, I, I, when I'm doing it with them, I say, oh, you lost that game. Because you know what? Everyone looked a little bit slower off the tee. You looked like you're going through the motions. You can't do that. Your opponent's playing really well. And then the next game, they play exceptionally well. Right. And I go, oh, unfortunately, your opponents still play better than you. They were playing really well, too. And it, despite everything you did, they came up yeah. with a shot that countered you. And yeah. getting them to think that way, you know, okay, so how am I going to beat them? And the interesting ones, when I do it, when Chris, Sakfi, and, and, uh, and Jamal Kalender, the three of us do it, we all get into it so much that we're kind of aware if we hit a good shot or not. And we're like, right. oh, that movement wasn't that good. That shot wasn't that good. I deserve to lose that rally. <laughs> Right, right, yeah. Um, That's awesome. So, which is kind of weird to be visualizing and thinking about. Well, I get, yeah, and I guess in a five-game match, you will lose uh, two or three games. So, uh, you know, you do, and I guess the recovery in between, uh, during games, in between games, is is critical. So, so having experienced that in a five-game match uh, through visualization is is really key. I think. Yep, that's yeah. fabulous. Yeah, awesome. Now. Uh, now, in the role of owner and management with, with your clubs now, uh, now just last week uh, I received a, a press release from Squash Canada. I think it was a press release or suggestions on how they might uh, advise owners and management to reopen whenever that time uh, comes. And it was quite a lengthy uh, thing. I think things like uh, that came up where you know, each player has their own ball uh, th- you know things like that 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 you know you would never even have considered in, in the past obviously so as an owner and as management and, and as a civic-minded uh, citizen you know, uh, what are your thoughts uh, on this um, you know in terms of opening reopening and getting people back onto the squash court um, my thoughts are we have to be I mean, incredibly careful with this. Mm. Um, and I think squash, unfortunately, is a tough sport for this, this pandemic and this virus because two players are incredibly close proximity, sweating, the court walls get wet and covered in sweat, uh, doors, everything else. So <clears throat> all the surfaces are going to be potentially infected with um, if someone is uh, playing with, with, uh, with, the, with COVID-19. So... <clears throat> From my perspective, I think we have to tread incredibly carefully. And for the foreseeable future, I can see courts and clubs with very easy access and footprint and also large spaces having minimal usage. And when I say minimal usage, I mean like solo practice. If there is a coach-led practice with one other person, it's like one other person in the building there's full um, cleaning procedures and disinfecting procedures in between. Um, nothing comes from outside other than you know, even changing shoes at the door, then disinfecting the people coming in. You know, I think we have to be <clears throat> incredibly, incredibly vigilant. The two ball thing I don't think works because the balls then hit the surfaces and hit the walls that have been wiped with people's sweat. And you know, yeah. so I think we can either play or we can't. And if we can play, it's one ball. Um, but match play for me, and I say this as a, you know, we own one club, we work out of the other Manhattan squash in New York. We have visions of having a lot more squash centers. We have camps, we have our whole businesses in squash. So for me saying that I don't think we'll go back to regular squash playing and match play in tournaments, um, very quickly is, is saddening and, and, and very yeah. difficult for my business. Yeah, yeah. 
but yeah. from a civic specific duty and responsibility, we have to be incredibly, incredibly careful. Absolutely. Um, more yeah. than I think anyone is um, possibly thinking or they're thinking, but hoping. Uh, and I just, uh, I don't want to be a, um, be negative, but I think it's going to take a little bit longer than we all think. Or yeah, hope. absolutely. Yeah, it's wishful thinking, I think. But, um, you know, there are, there are ways of getting back on court. But as you said, uh, you know, it's just going to be not the way it was before. No. Um, and I think solo practice um, with great uh, procedures around it to make sure ensure the courts are um, cleaned and safe. And I mean, it's going to be arduous to ensure those if you're doing it properly, you know, you're going to have to spray everything down afterwards. Hmm. Like every time someone's been on there. Um, yeah, something really like, uh, you know, if, if I were to book a court for, for solo practice, let's say it's a 45 minute booking and then you have to may, maybe the management factors in a 30 minute cleaning. So a 45 minute booking is actually an hour and a half and then the next yep. person comes on. After. Yep. And the same if it's a, if it's a coach, coach session, you know, if there's yeah. some, some, you know, coach form of session where there's distancing, mask, gloves, cleaning procedures, no, you know, anything like that the same thing would happen there, you know, because, um, every time a person leaves, everything has to be disinfected and cleaned again. Um, so, and I, and I, I mean doing it really well and properly. So I'm talking about getting a sprayer that sprays 20 feet up in the air and, you know, and and disinfects everywhere the ball would have been as well. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I I, I mean, your sister, your sister's involved in this on a daily basis. So I'm sure you've bounced a few ideas off, uh, off of her uh, over the, the last little while in terms yeah, and of before before we open i certainly will properly and fully yeah <laughs> yes um because obviously their procedures they've, they've again people who have been in this for nine ten weeks or longer they've learned so much in that time <clears throat> there's obviously still a lot of unknowns um but to, to take advice from people who are on the front line um i think is incredibly important um possibly even more so than certain governments you know people people who are dealing with it on a daily basis and who have certain procedures and protocols and have kept staff members safe well then you got to think after nine ten weeks they know what they're doing and they've certainly refined their processes and that's the the, those are the people we should be listening to really clearly yes i think i saw uh, we may have some sort of a thumbnail or or template coming up this premier league thing that's happening in new zealand i don't know if you saw the yeah, so that I mean, that might be. I'm not sure what uh, what they have in place for for running that, but uh, obviously New Zealand's had uh, sorry zero cases in New Zealand, right? Yeah, they 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 had a couple or zero or so. It seems, uh, but they I don't want to uh, <laughs> zero. So I think it's 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 not one that we can follow because it's just not real. It's not the same. They're not in the same type of environment, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I'm sure they'll be extra careful, but at the same time. I think zero is all squash players move to New Zealand. <laughs> Not like to go there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, though, the, yeah, I think you're right when it comes to that. We just need to uh, do what we have to do to stem the spread first, and then you know ease our way back in. And uh, if anybody, uh, you know, I, I think your your team, uh, uh, you've always demonstrated you've done things the right way. So uh, I'm sure this will be another a challenge for you, Peter. Yep, it is a challenge, but you know what? It's like everything this last while, it's a challenge and you can either accept it and try and improve and understand and deal or you know, you, you don't. And there's no there's no option or choice there, right? <laughs> we yeah. all have to and let's let's try and make the best of it, but at the same time be incredibly 
civic minded and, and do the right thing. Um, you know, we, we've thought about it and thought about having private courts and, you know, um, isolated facilities and then having people get tested um, before attending and then staying there and being quarantining together. So there are some options, but again, it's like just for a very limited amount of people potentially um, and the regular squash playing community and squash playing facilities. It's a very different scenario. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'd like to move on to uh, squash skills, if you don't mind, Peter. Uh, I mean, that's absolutely what squash needed, I think. Um, I mean, I, I play a little bit of golf, and I can go anywhere, anytime, and find out anything about any aspect of that game. And, uh, you, know, I, you know, if I want to, if I get the yips and putting suddenly, uh, I just go online and I'll find it. But in squash, uh, it's tough to do that. I mean, you can figure out how to hit a backhand, a forehand, a couple of YouTube videos out there. But what squash skills really uh, does well is it's got all of what I just said golf had. It has all of that and more, uh, I think, on, on, the, on the website and what you guys do. So firstly, really uh, great work with squash skills. So uh, how did that come to be, squash skills? Uh, was it something like when, when, did you, when did that seed get planted uh, for you. Well, I'm going to, first of all, thank you for giving me the credit for a lot of that, I, but I'm going to throw that and give that credit straight to Jethro Binns. Right. Um, because he, he was the person. He's I should the, know better. I knew, I knew a little bit about that. Sorry, Jethro. <laughs> we, um, we, we're called co-founders, but in essence, it definitely was um, his, his idea and his baby, and he came to me with it. Um, mm-hmm. He had a former partner as well who he worked with. And when we started talking about it, it was like, could you be a representative of the brand and you know you're just retired and you're thinking about next stages and and I was like yeah absolutely but then very quickly within like a month or two it ended up the, the other partner wanted to get out of the business and then Jethro and I took it together so the idea and the concept was not mine um, it was Jethro's and his business partner and then we together then started building it alongside um, Jessica Stanley my partner um, and wife and but and then from there we just had the first iteration of the website and then rebuilt it with the second one and just started to develop content, the marketing, I mean, learning an online business basically. Um, And what we wanted was because again, we talked about open skilled sport and Mm. what we wanted was we wanted to give people the opportunity to listen to whoever they wanted to, you know, I'm not right. right. Jethro isn't right. David Palmer isn't right. John Power isn't right. I mean, uh, Mike Way isn't right. No one's right. Sorry for interrupting, but that Peter, that's that's totally that's that's awesome what you're saying. I think that's where I I draw the comparison with what golf has too. When you go to uh, they have the 100 top teachers uh, of the year or whatever, uh, and you can go to each one and you know identify which one suits your your game or or your style. And I think that's exactly uh, kind of what's going on in, in a way, in, in your own way on squash skills. Yeah, and it's so important because I think there's always been, I think, maybe because it's a small sport, but you, you have to do it this way. You know, the coach, each coach is going like, this is who I am, this is what I do, and this is how you have to do it, otherwise you can't succeed. Mm. And it's just nonsense. Like everyone's <laughs> different. Yeah. Everyone has different body shapes, physical attributes, mental attributes, whatever. And you need different support networks to help you become the best player you can be. Um, so from Jethro and my perspective, it was very much about how can we help everyone become the best player they want to be. And they can delve as deep as they want 
or they can just have a quick look at some things and help them a little bit. And the deeper they delve, there's basically all this information for them to basically be able to learn to be the best player they can be. And I think that's a very important point um, and um, thought process for both coaches and for players. Um, I can do certain things on court um, with technique that I've learned because I'm so specific about certain things and I've really nailed, knuckled down and, and watched and understand certain things. So I can understand if a finger's slightly moving on the grip or you know, an elbow's in the halfway through the swing twitches or right. you can visually see things very clearly. Yeah. Um, and that means I can help a player, but I'm not trying to tell them then, oh, you don't do that. You know, it's like, right. I'm going to tell them that if you do that, then what happens with the racket head? Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad. So how could you maybe change that so you can get a better outcome more often? Right. And then, you know, and you're working with them. And if you have a tight shoulder, you're not going to be able to put the racket out here. If you have a, you know, if you have, if you're double jointed, you probably, you can, and then you can, you can hit all sorts of ways. Right. So it's, it's just one of those things where you I think you're trying to help the player be the best they possibly can be. And that's how we set up squash skills. Um, and we will continue to do so that you're just trying to help these help squash players have the tools and the resources that you're saying with golf um, yeah. as much as you possibly can. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can go to squash skills and find just about anything uh, that you think you might need for your own game, uh, particular to yourself, not necessarily, you know, just not the hitting a, a backhand out of the back corner. It would be like a, for me, it would be a specific type of movement for someone my age. Right. And that, that, that's critical for, for the game, like for a game like squash, because as you get older, uh, the game changes, as you know, Peter. I do know. <laughs> um, I, w- I want to take age out of it. I want to say, as your body changes, right? Because yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, your like mind you, doesn't. Yeah, yeah. And you might, you might be injured. You might be getting a little older. You might not have been able to train as much because you're working harder or whatever it is, right? So you can start to think about, okay, if I'm not in as good shape, I have to do A, B, C because this is what this person is helping me with. I have to say as well right now, like with squash girls, we couldn't have done it without the amazing support of all the coaches and players who came on. Yeah. yeah. And, and well, I was going to, I just wanted, I was going to ask you, my next question was to speak to those guys that I've, I've had on the podcast recently, Gary, uh, Jesse, Jethro. I mean, each one of them have been on more than once and they, they're just fountains of knowledge and passion for the game. Uh, so uh, speak to those guys. I mean, what they bring to the table and, uh, uh, just uh, the, the passion that they have. They are squash skills, right? Yeah. So they're not only um, creating content and putting it out and continuing to develop and create, keep this business what it is. They're also learning from other people and adapting what they do and improving. Mm. So yeah. I mean, it's one of those, it's a cycle. And if you're constantly in the mindset of, of a learning mindset and wanting to learn more, you, you will. And as coaches, as deliverer of content, my favorite thing, and I, I want to talk about that. They're, they're obviously doing an amazing job. They're working incredibly hard. But I also want to talk about all the, the pro players and coaches who have come on as guests. Yeah. You know, and that's six former world number ones, seven or eight maybe now. It's, like, it's phenomenal and given their time. And <clears throat> one of the things I'll put down to the two things that helped me become a better coach. I realized after I played, I knew a little bit, but I didn't know much as a coach because I wasn't a coach, right? I was just starting. Mm. And the last, the first thing that helped me a lot was I used to go and film with the players. So I'd go and film Terry Linku, David Palmer, John White, 
and I'd spend a day or two days being kind of the director. <laughs> okay, yeah. Watching from behind the camera. Yeah. And I learned so much. I yeah. mean, I learned so much from the everyone that we, we worked with because I was hearing their process and how they thought about things and how they put it all together and constructed their game. Um, and then also if they became coaches, how they then coach now and how they thought mm. about it. So I'm getting all this information. And then I come over to the U.S. about seven years ago and start coaching more regularly um, mm. on a sort of daily basis. And then I cut my teeth on just being a coach on the ground, right? And really being there and doing it every day. And those two aspects, I feel, really have helped me become a much better coach. Yeah. Um, that, found, that knowledge that I, I gained from listening to all those, all those coaches and players was phenomenal. And then on top of that, then I just did it myself and then became more proficient because I was actually... I guess the fact too that you, I mean, as a player, you were, you were a very good student of the game. I mean, you studied your opponents and you, you were, as you mentioned earlier, you, you had to adapt yourself. So I guess through that, uh, you know, you, you enabled yourself to become a, a coach uh, going forward down the road. Yeah, I certainly knew some aspects of coaching straight away because I'd thought about everything so much, right? Mm. I had to, I taught myself and trained myself to constantly be looking out for ways to improve. But from a technical and delivery perspective, um, and you know, I learned a lot very quickly because I wasn't very good at times. I really wasn't, you know. Right. I, it, the, the thing that I, that I noticed was that when I was coaching, I had all this knowledge, I think, from lots of different people and mm. from my own self but how I delivered that. So sometimes I was yeah. really unclear as in I'm giving people six pieces of information and they're looking at me going, I just want to learn to hit forehand drive. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. 12, <laughs> give me a break here. Tell me what to do. Yeah. And, um, but then also I was, I, I just was, I was giving them so much information that it was just impossible for them to absorb. And then I was confusing myself as I'm saying it because I'm taking, so I think what happened after that was I learned to package it and learn to put it in a way that was meaningful for the, the players I was coaching while still trying to retain my open-mindedness about all the different ways it could be done. Right. Absolutely. And that's the, that was the thing I've, I've learned more over this past while, and I will continue to learn until I stop coaching. And, and I guess that's the beauty of having so many uh, guys uh, contributing to squash skills because you get all that intel and all those different ways of, uh, you know, of coaching that, that you can feed off of. Yeah, we have that with score skills. And then on my day-to-day -day basis with the coaches we work with, you know, I have four or five coaches who we talk every two or three times a week about the programming, how it went, what's next week's programming, what's the coaching points, what are you thinking about. During the sessions right now, especially the virtual ones, it's really great to listen to other people because if we have three coaches delivering to 15 kids, all three of us as coaches will give feedback. Yeah. And it's like if you're on court or there's five courts and there's three coaches, you maybe don't interface with that coach as much because they're delivering themselves to the right. players. Right. Now I'm getting to hear all three coaches deliver it and talk about what they're thinking about as they're doing it. So I'm getting from a virtual perspective, I think I'm getting more information. I'm learning more from other people because we're all in it together. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's the beauty of, of the technology. I mean, I guess we, we start, you know, we complain about, the way things are right now obviously there's reason for that but uh under the circumstances that's a positive isn't it you, you can actually develop uh yourself more so uh given the, the circumstances always finding positives yeah you gotta making lemonade out of lemons 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, now what's in, what's up next for squash skills, Peter? Is there anything in the, in the hopper or any, any, any challenges that you have that you see in terms of uh, moving sort of pushing the envelope, I guess? There, there are always challenges. Um, but I also think there's, there's definitely something coming up that will be, we can't, I can't talk about right now, but will mm. be coming up and I think it'll be exciting for, um, for the, for the squash community. Um, and it's just always trying to develop more, you know, it's a small mm. sport, small business and a small sport in tough times, but trying to improve the delivery, you know, of right. the content uh, to improve um, the user experience. Um, yeah. Those types of things will be the next stage, I think, because we have so much content on there. Yeah, and that's we have amazing. Great quality content and sessions and everything else. It's like, how is that going to be delivered? You know, and that's what, that's the next stage. And that's what, um, we're all working hard, especially, I mean, especially Jethro and the team in Bristol in the UK are working incredibly hard on is like how to deliver an XM, how to make that user experience better and how to, how to make it more meaningful when we, first of all, can't get on court. And then when we do get on back on court, how can we use squash skills on a more meaningful way on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah. Well, that's exciting. I mean, a, a squat, like I said before, it, it's a, it was a niche uh, kind of thing and it still is really because there's not much else out there there are a lot of good coaches with uh, with their own youtube channels and, and their own websites with which uh, which is great uh, but uh, squash skills has a, has the unique uh, thing where it's so much content so a lot of good content in one place which is uh, fantastic now peter I, I i hope you don't mind if we step back into the glory days a little bit before we uh sign off tonight because uh I'm a bit of a fan, as I told you, and there are many out there. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, um, the JP Nickel, when the JP uh, and Peter Nickel era ended, it was a sad, sad uh, time for many of us. But uh, before we go there, though, um, you reached number one, not uh, uh, because you uh, you uh, overcame JP in that, at that time, but you did defeat, and I think maybe a lot of people are aware of it, but many aren't, that, that you... You overcame Jan Shir Khan in uh, 1998. You took the number one ranking, and you beat him in the Br British Open to affirm that thereafter. So just wondering uh, what that moment, uh, with, uh, that's got to be like up there, if not the moment in your career where you say, you know, that, that was, uh, you know, I'm, I'm proudest of that moment. I mean, it's tough to say given all that you've, you've achieved, but yeah, it's, what it's say you to that? It's a tough one, um, but... The, I like the word affirming um, because I came, I became number one in February 1st and then the British open was in April and right. back then number one was important, obviously, but the British open was the number one thing. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. if Janshir had won that one, he would have still been seen, even though he couldn't play as often and maybe was starting physically really to break down. It would have been another year before I'd have really been seen as the number one player in the world because right. He was still able to peak for the British. And, he and did you? Did he? Did you? Did he know that? Like, did you get the feeling that he he felt that as well? Oh, I think that was it. Basically, he played a couple more times after the British Open, but that, he didn't really play again. That was right. it. He was done. And the thing that I remember going into the British Open final was the year before I played him in the final, and it was in Cardiff, and I'd lost in two hours and eleven minutes um, through two. But I don't know if this, and I don't know if this is true or not, or if it was just my coach Neil Harvey telling me to make me feel like I deserve to win and I can win. But he said that he saw uh, all year he'd been telling me 
he saw all of Janshar's support staff carrying him through the lobby because he couldn't walk because his knees were so sore. Right. And for a sympathetic human being, you'd be like, oh man, I feel sorry for him. For me, it was like, right, I got him. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and I just yeah. had to wait a year to get him again. So for me, it was about winning the British Open. That, that, then, that then solidified me as being the best player in the world. But then immediately after that though, uh, some some guy called Jonathan Power came along, mm. and in that same time, like I mean, it was right at the same time. So I'm number one in the world. I've won the British Open, and then Jonathan beats me six times in a row. Right, six times in a row, and I'm number one in the world. I'm British Open champion. This should be my year, right? Um, and so did was, did that take you by surprise? Like, uh, I guess in in ninety, I mean, he sort of came through in 96 or seven with when he won the tournament, the champions there. Uh, yep. But, but did you see him coming? Like, did you know that that was going to sort of potentially happen? I knew he, I, I remember seeing him, the change in him and it was, I played him in, it might've even been 95 Hong Kong and we played, it might've been first round as well. Cause he was still 94. Whenever it was where he, I would have played him in the first or second round, and we played on the three wall glass court downstairs and I'd played him a year before in the Canadian Open. And he was good, but I was way ahead of him. Um, yeah. And then I played him there. And it, like every game, I think I won through, I think I won three love. But every game was 17-15, 17-16, 17-15, 13. It was like super, super close. Yeah. And it was a real wake-up call. Um, and I realized that if he kept pushing and kept trying to be good, um, trying to do as best he could, then he was going to be a problem. Um, right. But I certainly didn't envision, my focus was Jansher, Rodney Isles, um, Brett Martin, Ahmed Barada, and kind of then Jonathan, right. until he started beating me every time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then it was like, okay, it's just Jonathan now, because Jansher's gone. I think I've got the hang of the other guys, kind of, most of the time. Um, but now Jonathan's come and beat me six times. Right. Um, so then we, that year is an interesting year period because we then went to the, uh, 98, 98, we went yeah. to the Commonwealth games mm. and yeah, that, that was, I, I remember like, I, I know the whole story. You, you, you had won six in a row and then Commonwealth games, you got your revenge, right? Yeah. 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 And that was a huge one because I think it was also just a huge, if he'd won that in a big five setter and won seven in a row. I mean, I, I think I'm strong mentally, but there's a point where I'm going to start to really struggle to keep keep coming back. And Jonathan's mm. a confidence player. He oh, feels yeah. good, right? He yeah. feels like he's unbeatable. And then as soon as he feels that, you're in big trouble. Yeah. So yeah. winning that game just meant that we, we had this then six-year seesaw battle where I then won three in a row. He then won the... So I won... I was world number one, won the British Open. He beat me six times. I won the Commonwealth gold. So then at the end of the year, I was going for the world, the world championship in Qatar. And yeah. if I won that, I had everything. Jonathan <laughs> beat 3-1 in the final. Yeah. Right? So I, he won six, I won three, he won one. So we must have played 10 times in like a year and a bit. Yeah. Um, Hence the rivalry uh, you know, at, at its peak. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. And then from yeah. that point forward, we probably played a little bit less every year after that. Well, the era was so, I mean, people seem to forget that era was so deep. I mean, it just wasn't you two. It was uh, Johnny White, Thierry Lunku, Lee Beachel, uh, eventually they came, they came a Palmer. little bit later. Yeah, they were just a little later. later. There was a couple of years where it was, 
you know, it was still like Jancha was finishing, but there was Rodney Isles, Ahmed Barada, um, Anthony Ricketts, Boswell. Ricketts, yeah. They they were in amongst that, and then Beachill came um, alongside. But he was a little bit later again. It was it was uh, Link Palmer and Linku, um, and then Mishibana was there that whole time. Yeah, yeah. Just not really taking it as seriously as he obviously <laughs> right. later in life. Yeah. And then we yeah, saw yeah. what happened there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was um it was deep, but. I still think I still felt, and Jonathan and I both felt like for two, three years, it was maybe three, four years. It was, it was just down to how, yeah, we'd lose to other people, but it was down to how we both played and how we were at the tournament as to who we really felt was going to, going to win the event. Right. And then it changed. Then it significantly changed when, you know, Palmer and Linku were there and then it was like in white and then there was five or six and then Brada kind of left and then Shibana came up and then there was, Greg Gauthier coming in, then Nick Matthew and um, James Wilstrop. So there was another period towards the end, and I'm not even mentioning Lee Beachel there, but there was a period where there was five, six, seven players who could have won. And then yeah. there was a period where it was like nine or 10 or 11 towards the end. And then Shibana sort of took a stranglehold of it for a bit, and Nick did. Um, yeah, uh, it was a great era. And then it just, yeah, from, from, that, from that point, 98, and then a few years, uh, you guys kind of dominated, but just the guys just kept coming and it became very, very intriguing every event. That's what I, I loved about that time. It's still yeah. great now, uh, but it, times are different now. So obviously, but uh, just to, to that point though, back during, during the early days, you probably during those, the, that 98, 97, 96, those years, you may not have been accustomed to uh, managing or grappling with uh, J, JP's theatrics on the court. So, how did uh, how did that manifest itself in in your head as it was playing out uh, on the court? And then uh, obviously maybe maybe you had trouble with it early on, and then you managed to kind of use it to your your advantage uh, after a few years. Can I swear? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> F bombs are allowed. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, I mean, he was just so infuriating. I would just I mean I was it was Im- immensely frustrating playing him being around him, um, <laughs> watching him play other people. Um, yeah. Just, he, he, I mean, he had this, it was a circus in his own head, I think. That was the thing, right? He was like, it was all going on inside his head and it would just come out. And yeah. that was the beauty of him, right? That was why he was so exciting to watch. He would play that way. Um, he had more structure than people thought, I think, as mm. well. That's the, that's the thing. He had way yeah. more structure than people thought in terms of his basics were fantastic. Um, and he did it more often than people thought. Um, one of the times I really felt like I was in trouble against him was when he'd go into his front backhand and then he'd punch it deep again, straight. Because yeah, yeah. he felt so confident that he didn't have to play a great shot. All he had to do was go in, hold, hold me on the tee and push me deep. And if he did that for 20, 30, 40 shots, I had to cover the front, right? I yeah, couldn't, yeah. couldn't leave it out. But if he did that for 20, 30, 40 shots, I was like, oh, I'm in real trouble here because it's physically just so draining. And he felt confident that he could do it. Um, yeah. So he was hitting the back corners. He wasn't really going short. No. Um, no. He was just hitting back corners, but with a beautiful hold and with a really quick movement and with a, he could do anything he wanted. Right. Um, <laughs> it was an important factor. Um, <laughs> yeah, so yeah. the, no, so the start though, it's like, I just, I mean, it was just, we were chalk and cheese. We were so different. Yeah. I was quiet. I was, I was, um professional i i was focused 
I mean, and Jonathan was was very different to that. He he had the the focus element that, but it was the, it was in his own way. You know, yeah. I was the Scottish Northern European focused, and he was more flamboyant, flared focused, and used different tools to get the best out of himself. Right. Um, and I didn't understand it at all. Um, so you <laughs> yeah. know, it was just. And then when I was playing him, that that that's what made that rivalry so what it was, right? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, chalk and um, cheese, like you said. And I, I just, when I was playing him, I just wanted to scream in his face sometimes. Yeah. I, I, there were times that you say I, I coped with it and I got used to it and I was able to deal with it and later on, no, sometimes I was, sometimes I wasn't. And right. I, was, I was more able to deal with it, but there were still times almost towards the end. I think the last couple of times we played, I don't think it was a problem. Right. But before then, um, it was, because I felt like, if he was getting a point that he shouldn't have, or there was something going on that, that I was, I felt I was insulted. I was offended. I was like, you gotta be kidding me because X, Y, Z, you know, it's like, this isn't. And I, I think as well, I, especially when I was younger, I was, I wasn't necessarily the most, I wasn't verbal and I wasn't necessarily the most emotionally connected person. <laughs> so <laughs> right. therefore I wasn't able to express myself and I just get frustrated. Well, well, that came off as a real, I mean, as you know, you're, you, you just said it, you're a professional, your temperament was, uh, you know, role model type temperament on, on the court. Uh, I can't really remember you ever having an outburst, like an extreme outburst, you know, you'd question calls and things like that, but uh, you were very much like, uh, you know, James Wilstrup might have fat, might fashion himself after you in that regard. Mine wasn't a fashion, mine was just my personality coming out on the court. Mm. So yeah. um, I would say less and dig deeper, say less, dig deeper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what I wasn't doing was expressing myself, which towards the end of my career, I worked really hard on a personal level outside of squash, working on being able to express myself and be able to communicate. And I think mm. as that happened, I became less frustrated with Jonathan because I actually saw where he was coming from. I felt mm. the pressure and then was able to release it. Whereas yeah. before I felt the pressure and I, I buried it deeper and, and became more stubborn and more fixated on winning and doing yeah. what I had yeah. to. So I started to understand them a lot more as I, as it went through a career. So I think the last couple of years, it was more, we had the most enjoyable game I ever had with Jonathan was the final of the super series mm. at the Broadgate arena. And it was the one where, I mean, he heard his calf somewhere through the fifth and he, he said someone he fell down me. right yeah, yeah. yeah and he said someone yeah. shot me with a bb gun or something and like you know and there's yeah. nothing wrong with him of course um <laughs> right. no one shot him with a bb gun right and he went on and he and i was just laughing you know that's the thing i got into the point where i got it you know yeah. and it was like and then we carried on playing and he beat me 15 we got a 14 all he chose one and he yeah. won 15, 14 in the fifth right and i remember that and we both went, I think we both had a drink after and just hung out. And it was the first time there was not that animosity. And, and you know, I think we both let a lot go. And we just enjoyed playing each other and, and appreciated it. And I think that we had conversations that night about it. And we talked about the fact that we didn't have that many close matches. We had three no. or four. Yeah, and yeah. the rest were all fairly one-sided. And we talked about it that night and saying how that was a really enjoyable one because... Well, that Commonwealth Games gold medal match, although the, the one that you won, it went five, but every, I think every game was like 9-2, 9-4, 9-3. That was the old scoring. So that yeah, really yeah. was 50-11. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I hear what you're saying. Um, but yeah, it was one of those ones where at that point... And then subsequently, what's been great with Jonathan is... 
we've sat and had a few drinks and hang out together. And I mean, I really like him. He's, oh, yeah. he's yeah. awesome. And he's so yeah. much fun. He's so interesting, but he's also got, we're so similar in so many ways. There's right. so many things underneath driving the, you know. Well, you don't driving. get to world number one without having some, some, uh, some common variables there. Uh, yeah. yeah. And that's like what we've noticed. And I think, you know, him without the competition is uh, he's sort of mellowed a little bit with that sometimes. Not, as soon as you get competitive, <laughs> he goes back to where he was. He red lines immediately. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I think from my perspective, I've certainly mellowed and I've started to be able to communicate better. So we can now have these, these moments and communications that are really meaningful because we shared so much of our careers and lives, like chasing each other, yeah. uh, working to beat each other, but also, I suppose, respecting each other along the way. Well, it's a chapter in, squ- in the squash history books. Uh, you know, if we were to write one now, it would be the JP uh, Peter Nickel era. And uh, you guys definitely... Uh, uh, gave us a lot to uh, to look forward to every event that you played in together. So uh, fantastic uh, era, Peter. Yeah. Well, it was fun for me too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and you, and you get it was palpable. I mean, you guys def, it was definitely you could see you guys enjoyed it. The passion was there, uh, regardless of uh, you know whether you won or lost. Obviously, if you lose, you don't like losing. But uh, definitely looked like you guys were enjoying yourselves. Uh, on court and, and made everyone happy. So uh, watching Great. it now. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, that <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now, I want to, just before we move on, and we're almost through here, uh, Peter, thanks so much for your time. Um, I, want, I didn't get to asking you, but, though, about the genius of Jancher Khan, because he, I mean, we talk about, you know, all these players, but Jancher, I've seen a, a lot of his footage over the years, and just incredible. His movement, his touch, his guile, uh, his court you know, craftsmanship, everything was on point when he was at his best. Um, so what, uh, how would you describe the, the genius uh, of Jancher? And although you only, you played him and beat him at the end of his uh, career, obviously he still had uh, a lot of those attributes uh, anyways. Yeah, he, I remember a couple of times playing him when he still was able to physically move like he had before. He still wasn't as fit as he had been previously, but his technique and his mm. shot making ability and his guile were way beyond how he was when he was younger. Yeah. And um, I played him in the I, first time I beat him. I beat him at the um, Leaks Welsh Classic. Okay. Uh, 94, yeah. I think. 94. And I beat him 3-1 in the second round. I was like, this is amazing, blah, 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 you know, whatever. I found out subsequently that from 93 World Open and World Teams, he hadn't picked up a racket. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And it was like six weeks later. Right. um, Because he'd won the World Individual in Pakistan. He'd won the World Team with Pakistan in Pakistan. And then I think he just relaxed and took a holiday. Um, A well-deserved one. Yeah. And uh, so he barely picked up a racket. So I won that one, three, one, the tight game. I played him six months later in the uh, Hong Kong Open final. And I think I'd beaten... Brett Martin in the quarters, Rodney, uh, Brett Martin in the quarters, Rodney Isles in the semis, mm. I think, something like that. And then I was playing, or maybe Chris Walker, and then I was playing him in the final. Now, I was new to the event in terms of anyone knowing who I was and blah, blah, blah. And they, do this, they did this thing in Hong Kong that they, before you go in, you put your name in to say who's going to win, either in Jansha or Peter. Right. And uh, you get a free two two first class tickets with Cathay Pacific, who were sponsoring at the time anywhere in the world, right. or something like that. So it was a great prize. So everyone did it. And I remember walking into the venue, and they they march you in with your flag and everything else. And I remember looking at it, and like 
John Sher had won this event eight years in a row or something. I mean, I mean, yeah. something crazy. So everyone was just desperate for someone else to win. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah. it was 90% Peter Nickel. And I remember <laughs> going in thinking, oh, I've got a chance here. And the last time I played him, I beat him as well, I think. So I'm like, I, I got this, right? I got this. I've learned. I've, I mean, I've just beaten I mean, Brett Martin, number two in the world, Rodney Isles, number four or whatever. And then I'm playing John Sher. I beat him last time. It's going to be fine. Yeah. He gave me the biggest lesson. I've had yeah, on a squash yeah. court other than playing Chris Dittmar in practice when he beat me 27 love. Um, <laughs> and it was phenomenal. I mean, he beat me in 35 minutes up to 15. You know how long oh, those yeah, games yeah. last and I'm physically fit. He didn't give me anything. I couldn't run and get the ball because the ball wasn't there. He yeah. basically gave me a lesson in how to play squash, how to manage a situation and how to not let someone who runs and moves do nothing. Right. And 35 minutes later, I walked off and he shook my hand and I never forget the look on his face. It was like, <laughs> old, like an old master going, you're not there yet, son. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was, so Jan yeah. was phenomenal. I think, I mean, his, his trajectory from being like an amazing mover, um, sucker puncher with great hands, then transitioning Incredible hands. to, even, even when he off that, started, that backhand drop off the serve. Yep. I mean, it was phenomenal. And yeah. he developed into this amazing player. But at the same time, obviously, physically, he started to lose interest in training and be physically sore. And so there's that whole yeah. period. And then there's this moments in the middle, these moments in the middle when he's got everything, right? Physically, yeah. he's feeling good, physically strong, and he's able to technically and tactically play the way he wants to. Well, no I wonder you've got running. so much uh, intel when it comes to squash skills. I mean, you, 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 uh, you've, you've had him to play. You had that that era. You had, we talked about it earlier, the JP era, the era after that. I mean, all of this experience that you've accumulated as a player and observed firsthand, I mean, that's obviously uh, uh, it manifested itself in what you've become as a coach. I think so. And I yeah. think the, one of the biggest things is like take the players out of it, just the eras. Full swings with a wooden racket or a heavy graphite mm. through to almost no swings now at, yeah. at times with a, with a light racket. So how do you go from A to B or A to Z? And then what are the different components that make that swing work? And what do you need and maybe what you don't need? And when do you need it and when don't you need it? So I think having that going across those whole, that whole period has given me a unique perspective on how, how the game evolved, how the swings and movements evolved and how it's become how it is now and what, what things we should hold on to from the past and what things we should definitely say, well, that's definitely time to go and we never need to see that again. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, just uh, uh, be real. Just, just quickly with Jancher. Yeah, yeah, finished. okay. Yeah. I, I just think that people now, when they're watching Squash or when they maybe see old videos, I don't think they quite appreciate how much work he had to do and what he learned over his career as well yeah. because he was playing Jahangir. He was built to beat Jahangir to start with. That's yeah. kind of how he was built. And he was playing these amazing Australian players as well, like Dittmar and the, the Martins and Isles and, and Ross Norman as well and Chris Robertson. And yeah. he was built to try and beat those players who were all technically so good. Um, and then he learned from all of them, I think, as well, and then became this hybrid of that, that I, I mean, obviously everyone's biased as in terms of who was the best ever and, you know, I just feel that at moments in his career, because he was built to beat Jahangir, and he then adapted and learned to do everything else as well, yeah. and was probably doing the stuff that the guys are doing now 20 years ago, some of yeah. it, 
Um, yeah. That makes him for me like difficult to overlook as I mean the best best player, the best. I mean, he's definitely one of the two or you know three. In yeah, the he's definitely he's got to be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the conference. But just because of that, it's just I mean it goes without saying. It's just amazing. Yeah, his movement. I mean, it's like he. I've seen a few videos where it looks like he's just walking, yeah. walking from corner to corner. <laughs> it's amazing. You know you, yeah. If you know where you're going and you're perfectly balanced. You're perfectly I wish balanced, I could do that, Peter. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Trust me, me too. <laughs> I mean, it's just like he, he, he learned to read everything so mm. clearly as well. It's like yeah. you don't have to work hard if you move perfectly, you're well-balanced, and you know where you're going. And you have I, guess, perfect I guess that speaks to the quality of – just his shot making, you know, every aspect of his game. Cause he knows if he puts it deeper, he knows if he hits a certain shot that there's only one option and uh, I'm going to be there. Uh, and when there were two, <laughs> yeah. and I've seen, I, I watched this movement a lot when I was in video analysis to try and learn to, how can I get him? You know, how can I beat him? There's times that I've seen him go the wrong way, do an immediate yeah. split long squat with one leg. So he's literally, hasn't even kind of split squat. He's gone to the right. And he's kept the right leg planted, and then the left leg's just gone out six to eight feet, and then he's counter dropped in the other side. And yeah. it was one; it's, it's one of those moments that so well balanced, so dexterous mentally as well that he got put completely the wrong way, and within a millisecond he changed direction. His body then got the balance to then be able to go in a different direction, and then he delivered with his racket head. Yeah. yeah. And anyone else would have lost the rally, wouldn't have seen the ball or or fallen over. And he did the opposite. He played a winner off of it. And yeah. I remember watching that so clearly um, when I was um, trying to beat him. And I did wonder, well, what do I have to do? <laughs> and then, of course, we found ways to, you know, I, well, don't do that. Just yeah. keep it straight and tight and make him work until he doesn't want to work anymore because he doesn't want to be physically pushed anymore. Right. And just do twice as much work or three times as much work as him. But, you know, that, that again, just phenomenal athlete, phenomenal scholar, and has... Yeah, it was, I mean, for me, it was amazing to be able to play him and be on court with that's him. All, that's awesome, Peter. Now, uh, you've been really great with your time, and I think I've been remiss uh, for not having mentioned uh, two people who were obviously very important to you. First, your father. Uh, he got you into the game, uh, and I think if you know, my research team is correct, that's exactly when he started playing. But um, you uh, uh, said that he's a, he was a great coach, and that, that's sort of what enabled you to become who you were, who you are at, at a young age, uh, started to get involved in the game and be competitive with it. So what was it about your, your dad as a coach that, you know, he, you obviously describe him as a great coach and, uh, how did he impact your game as a player and as a coach, perhaps even now today? Well, I think it's not even as a player or a coach, it's just as me, you know, he, yeah. he impacted my life so greatly. He's obviously my father, but I mean, how he views things, how he, I remember like I now, I now just go and play soccer with my, my kid and he's six years old and we do like, like fun drills just to have fun with it. But I hear myself doing what my dad did with me. Mm. And it's like, what he did was he gave information to me to help me understand it for myself. Right. So it would be one of those ones where give the information, work on, work on it on your own and then come back with improvements that you've done yourself and then we'll do it again and we'll do it again. And it wasn't as formal mm-hmm. as that. It was just more, that's just how you learn in life. That's what you do. You absorb yeah. information and you use it to the best of your ability. 
and then you give that back whichever way you're doing. If it's for yourself, you're like being a selfish squash player, then that's what you do. If you're being a coach, you have to give it selflessly to the player to allow them to achieve what they want to achieve. So for me, he he basically he really gave me that 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 mindset of thinking about um, how to be, do the best you possibly can at all times, how to be positive in every situation, however negative it might be, and take something positive from that situation because you have to, um, and use that to improve in whatever you're doing in any aspect in life, um, and then. And then basically you'll continue to learn. So again, it goes back to what we talked about. I think my biggest thing was like being able to learn and growth and more than my technique, my physical ability, my tactical, you know, it was much more about that learning process and being able to constantly improve and learn. Um, and that's what he gave me because that was his mindset. And he did it in a really, especially from a very young age, he did it in a really um, positive way that made me want to do it more. He wasn't yeah. telling me what to do. He kind of was telling me what to do, but he was doing it in a way that made me feel like I was empowered and I was learning and I was, I was the master of my own ship and I was, I was, I was doing it, you know? Right. Well, that's all. That's awesome. And, uh, and also, uh, Neil Harvey, uh, obviously you guys had some glory years, uh, uh, many glory years together. We've seen him in your corner. Uh, actually he holds a, a very, uh, a spot in my heart as well. He was my uh, first episode on this podcast. So, nice. uh, <laughs> He's been on twice, actually. Um, but uh, anyways, uh, during those years and during that time when things were, when you were coming up and when things were getting tough and you battled through, uh, what was it that enabled you guys to be successful and maintain such a, you know, a successful and trusting uh, relationship uh, over the years? Well, I think from the very start, what Neil did and, and when I first met him, I went down to stay with him for a week. Um, the other person we need to mention here is David Pearson, but right. he, he sent me down to Neil Harvey um, because he said, the person you need to see to get become a professional player and tour the world is, is Neil Harvey. I can't do it. I went and spent a week with Neil um, and his wife, Lorraine, at the time, and he basically went put me through everything. He tested me, and he yeah. was like, on court, we worked hard. He pushed me, got me out to do some like 40 meter sprints or whatever, and then do some ghosting um, and then play him. And then when we played, he would change the score on me to see what I'd react like. You know, it was 6-3 me. And all of a sudden he's like, 6-3 me. No, I know it's not. And he's like, yes, it is. 6-3 me, let's go. And then he'd serve. So he just, he did things to see what I'd be like. And yeah. um, he basically taught me how to be professional. Every aspect of being professional, whether it be food, um, having my bag fully prepared, having uh, coming in time for, le for, for sessions, being prepared for those sessions, doing a solo before the sessions. I mean, everything that I needed to do to be a professional player and to try and be the best player in the world, he instilled on me. I obviously had that in me from like growing up, but I, didn't, I couldn't access it. Mm. Um, and he basically gave me the, the, the tools to, to do that. And then from that point forward, we, would, we developed our relationship throughout the years um, but it went from being like a hundred percent all in doing everything together. And, and I stayed with them. Um, we practiced together, trained together. I did all the sessions with him and all, all the players through to towards the end, um, doing more the, the individual sessions and the group training and individual sessions, but I'd go and do my other sessions on my own and do different things. Um, so what I think happened was like I developed, um, throughout the, the relationship, um, but all the way through, we had this connection where we could 
I could, I could still very much learn from them at all times, whether it be the group sessions or the individual sessions, yeah. there was something in those, in those times that I was getting something so valuable from those. And again, being a professional squash player, you're selfish, right? If I'm not getting anything valuable, I'm going to do something else. Right. Yeah. Um, and I was always getting something valuable from me. He always had something brilliant to offer. Um, there would be like a moment of, okay, that's where I need to focus. And like the whole Jancher and then J Jonathan thing, we constantly go back and forth. And, well, how am I going to get better? How am I going to change that? How are we, what's Jonathan doing? And then what do I need to do? And how do I break that down to then practice and work on it? So that three months later, I actually have the skill set to do it. And that's where Neil was great. It was very much about, we're on this process, we're on this journey and we're going to work on a, on a day-to-day -day basis, but we're also, this is always a plan. You're always being a professional. You're always trying to be the best you can be. And I think that's what held us in, in great stead in terms of the relationship over 10 years. Um, he knew me. Well, he was obviously well. a great student of the game as a player as well. I mean, he, he, he reached some, some very good heights and then he, he discovered how to, how to beat the best players in the game. I mean, that, that win over, uh, Ross Norman, uh, I forget which event was British Open or World Open or one of one of these big events, and and that sort of really put him on the map as a, you know, as as a first-rate you know top player in in, in the world, and uh, he did that I think through just knowing knowing his game and knowing how to apply it and just a lot of knowledge. It's interesting how great coaches come from people who have played, obviously, but not everyone who's played very well becomes a great coach, but how they played and how they think about the game and how they learn and did they keep improving and mm. what, what was their next stages and what did they achieve? Um, and I mean, Neil had a couple of bad injuries that mm. throughout at that time caused, caused um, you know, changed his trajectory as a player. But at the same time, I'm guessing that meant that he was introspective and looked at what he was doing and how he was doing it. Um, change it up a little bit, um, but then also that gave him the tools to then be able to be a great coach thereafter. Right. Now, speaking of injuries, Peter, I know you had one maybe a year or so ago. You had a surgery or something like that. So how, how are you feeling these days? Are you, uh, you know, if you could, would you uh, be back on court playing? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't like playing that much, but I'd be on court coaching. Yeah, and, yeah. And doing stuff. So, but playing... Um, I don't feel the need to play that often. So no. um, not, not like play, JP but... there uh, uh, on the Super Squash Saturdays. Um, <laughs> <laughs> again, he's too competitive for his own good. Oh he god, really yeah. The, that um, second match, I mean, you knew you knew he was gonna something was not good was gonna happen. Yep. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I, I mean, my knee's great. It was just a yeah. small meniscus tear, so it was just okay. repaired kind of quickly and. I was kind of lucky because what it did, it gave me the impetus to look after myself better, you know, get right. stronger, get into shape. Um, and then in the last eight, nine weeks, I've been doing three, four workouts a week, plus doing the sessions we're doing, you know, um, and running around with my six-year-old. So I'm probably healthier than I've been since, almost since I retired in terms of physically. Brilliant. Um, but there's no, no desire to go back and play anything competitive ever again. Right, right on, right on. Okay, well, that <laughs> makes me feel, I'm still looking for that competitive uh, injection every now and then, but there's no need for it if you've been there and done that. So, Peter, you've been an absolute legend today. Thanks so much uh, for your time. Uh, all the best to your fam you and your family. Stay safe, stay well and keep up the, the fantastic work with everything that you're doing. It, it was uh, an honor today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jerry. And just a quick one for everyone. I know it's going to be tough times for a little period ahead, but we'll get back there. We'll get back on core and we'll get back playing the game we love.
I'm convinced about that. It might take a little bit longer than we hope, but we'll all be doing it soon enough. Well, what more can I say after that? I mean, that was fantastic. Peter Nickel, if you need him, uh, amazing interview, uh, amazing chat with him, and such an easy guy to talk to, and just covered so much ground there. Appreciate Peter, and we want to wish uh, him, his team at the Nickel Squash Academy and at Squash Skills. Squash Skills, like we said, I mean, what a game changer that's been. And uh, we I just look forward to everything that they put out, and they're always pushing the envelope there. So Peter's done a great job with that, and uh, what a great uh, chat with him today. So thanks to Peter Nickel uh, for episode 141. We've got several more coming through. Uh, we've got Chris Hanneberry, the new, newly uh, announced, uh, just recently, head coach of the Western Ontario Mustangs, the legends of the Canadian varsity squash scene. I'm not sure how many years they've won it, but pretty much every year since, uh, I don't know, it must be 30, 40 um, titles at least under their belts but uh, they compete very competitively south of the border in the varsity uh, squash competitions there even these days i think they finished uh, 11th last year but uh, chris will be on uh, to talk about uh, about his new gig there and also about his uh, serious squash which is another instructional uh, uh, webs uh, another stru- instructional site that's out there and it's very good you should take a look into that but he'll be on to talk about that we also have uh paul waters with any luck coming up next week and he's going to talk about the the new premier squash uh league that's going on in in new zealand right now and much much more so many thanks to everyone thanks for listening by the way uh give us a like give us a share uh rate my podcast uh any feedback that you have, that'd be fantastic. But uh, really appreciate everyone who's listening. This was a fantastic day for the podcast, having pick Peter Nickel on. It doesn't get much better than this for me. Uh, so uh, let's celebrate that. Enjoy this podcast and enjoy the rest that are coming through very soon. So thanks, everyone, for listening. Take good care now. Be safe. Be well. Let's beat this pandemic and get back on the court in whatever fashion fits the circumstances. And it hopefully sooner rather than later, but we have to be civic-minded about it. At any rate, hopefully it's sooner rather than later. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Have a great day. Goodbye now.